minimalists. <laughs> All right, during the break, we were talking about how many hours we work a week. <laughs> and uh, it's somewhere between 5 to 80, apparently. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, and, and that's the nice thing of being... I, I wouldn't say that Ryan and I are, I mean, are financially independent. We have, we have passive sources of income, basically. But you know. you're entrepreneurs. Right, right. Yeah. And we, we've written some books that, you know, even if I'm asleep, someone can buy a book and uh, support us that way, right? Mm-hmm. Or someone can support us on the podcast if they'd make a one-time donation via, like, PayPal or something, or if they're a Patreon supporter, obviously, we get uh, immense support from those folks. Um, we also have a, a staff of people, you know, we, a team of people we, we work with, whether it's Podcast Sean or Jordan No More or Jessica Lynn Williams, uh, Dave and Jeff we work with on the website. Like, there's, there's a team of people, but all of these things are sort of assets in a way that, that earn income. Um, I think what we were getting at, though, is we, we work on things that... I work a lot because I find what I do to be incredibly meaningful to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's an important part of, of work that quite often, uh, it's Ryan and I are from Dayton, Ohio, and, and it's the overdose capital of America. And I think part of the reason for that, there are a few reasons, a few factors that, that factored into that, but one of the biggest ones is the manufacturing left Dayton, uh, at least a lot of it did, when uh, the GM plant closed and you know, GM was there, but there's a whole, fa- uh, 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 all of North Dayton is basically all these factories that all shut down. Their only, their sole client was GM. You have these 200 person businesses that also went out of business. So all these people who found meaning in the work that they did, they were using their hands, they were creating, they were building. Overnight, all of a sudden, they've lost not just their job, they've lost the meaning in their lives. Mm-hmm. And quite often we lose meaning, we turn to pacification. And one of the worst pacifiers are, are drugs and opioids in, in, in particular. Yeah. And so there's an opioid crisis there. And Well, uh, opioids like make it okay to be bored. Mm. Like that is why it's such an epidemic is because you could be sitting on the couch and you're sitting there and you're like feeling like, oh man, I'm lazy and I got this problem. And then like you pop a pill or you inject something and all of a sudden you're like, man, life is pretty awesome. Mm. when it's not awesome. I think that's why all the people in the financial independence movement continue to work. I mean, we do find meaning in work. And I think that the hard part is, well, there's two things. One is that our culture tells us to just follow our passions, right? right? And everything will be fine. Mm. Well, that's not true. I'm here to tell you. (laughs) I have followed my passions many, many times and they have led me astray. (laughs) Um, But finding meaningful work I think is really at the root of all of this. Amen. Um, and that is a really, really hard thing to do. I mean, I you know I think about your callers who are suffering through a minimum wage job or buried in debt, and then and then on top of that, you're like, oh, you just need to find a meaningful job and everything will be fine. And it's like, no, no. Yeah. I'm going to take opioids because that is not going to happen. You know, right? Yeah. And it's. It's hard, but I do think, and this is what I love about what you guys do, is that the addiction to consumerism, the advertising, the brainwashing, literally, that goes on in this culture that tells somebody to get into more debt in order to have the thing that will make them happy, you know, these are all compounded problems that make the question of finding meaning more and more difficult. Mm -hmm. The cool thing about financial independence is that if you can liberate yourself from mandatory work, you have the opportunity perhaps to find something that's more meaningful. You know, not everybody's an entrepreneur. You guys are entrepreneurs, you know, Mm -hmm. and that is a gene. Like for sure. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and it's all. I think it's all something we cultivated, but but it is definitely something that we've even within the corporate world. You know, we, we were sort of intrapreneurs in in a way. You know, we we we. I mean, I opened dozens of retail stores, and 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 so I was sort of an entrepreneur even within that setting. Ryan did yeah. the same thing. He started a whole division within a company um, that didn't exist before that, um, and it was sort of. Being an entrepreneur operating within the confines, I like what you're saying about about um, the releasing yourself from mandatory work. Mm-hmm. And I think the the obverse side of that with minimalism is releasing yourself from mandatory consumption. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We all need some stuff. 
uh, but when when consumption becomes not just impulsive but compulsive, where I must yeah, consumerism is also a drug. It just has a, a shinier coating, and it's socially acceptable. Yeah. It absolutely is. In fact, it's socially encouraged. That's right. Yeah. Isn't that crazy, though? Like, to be an entrepreneur these days, it's it's a lot easier, I would say, than it was 100 years ago. I mean, you've got Instagram influencers. You've got YouTubers. I mean, for crying out loud, you can play video games and make a living from, like, people watching you play video games. Mm -hmm. A very good living. Yes. And what's crazy, though, is, like, I mean, a lot of that's donations, but influencers and, you know, YouTubers a lot of their money comes from ad revenue. So it's like this self-perpetuating cycle of like, you can become an entrepreneur if you can get enough views to make enough money from the ads that are displayed while you're getting the views. I don't know, you know, an easy answer to that, but it's it's almost kind of like it's perpetuating that consumerism. It's, it's, a tough, it's a tough thing. One of the critiques of the FIRE movement is that, well, if everybody became financially independent then nobody would, and everybody was frugal, then nobody would buy anything and our society would collapse. Hey, that's what they say about minimalists. <laughs> Which I love. <laughs> I just love that idea. Um, but, you know, It's look, just not true. <laughs> we, we've, we've somehow managed to build a comfortable situation for ourselves as human beings in the Western world specifically, mm -hmm. or the developed world, I should say. Um, and I don't think consumerism and marketing are going away anytime no. soon. No. But taking control of your own relationship to that is extremely powerful. Yes. I, I think that you know, we get that same argument. The economy will collapse. We can't get everyone to agree on anything. I, at, at our best, Let half the country might agree on voting on the same person. Right. Generally not. So if you think everyone's also, uh, all of a sudden going to be responsible with their money... <laughs> hello I, or responsible with their consumption no but what you just said is perfect travis it, it's it's about you being responsible with a good steward of the resources you have yeah not worrying about if everyone can also be a good steward well if everyone can't be a good steward then i might as well be reckless as well right what it, a terrible recipe it really is and the thing too is like if everyone, you know, practice this, uh, you know, fire method, or if everyone became a minimalist, the world would not stop spending money. They would start spending less. But here's the thing: like, if we if we don't spend any money, yeah, the economy collapses. If we spend too much money, the economy collapses. I.e., two thousand eight, two thousand nine. Right. So you know, fire or minimalism, you know, I would posit actually is kind of the middle ground to to those two extremes. Uh, and another... until, until we abolish money, there's always going to be money, right? Yeah. So you got to spend it somewhere. And that's the other thing that's amazing about the financial independence community is that what they do is that they're very conscientious about where they spend their money. Mm. They're not saying don't spend money. It's like uh, J.D. Roth, who has a blog called Get Rich Slowly. Mm -hmm. It's a great per practitioner in the in the space. You know, he says, you know, if you don't find value in fancy clothes don't spend money on fancy clothes. Right. But if you love great food, spend your money on great food. Mm -hmm. You know, there's nothing wrong with that. As a culture, we tend to spend a lot of money on things that just don't matter, right? right? But we could be spending our money on, for instance, creating greater green spaces in our cities. Yeah. Or in Los Angeles, God forbid, a bike lane. <laughs> oh my God. Like what would we, happen we if got, LA, you could ride your bike in LA? We have a bike lane. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we do. We have a bike lane. Right. Well, yeah, but the, weather, the weather's so terrible here. Why would you ever want to oh ride your God. bike? No, it's 73. It's terrible idea. Terrible idea. You, you know, the other thing too is like there are there are things in place in this country, in the well, in Western society where, you know, you like we were talking about on the, uh, on the Minimal podcast, like we're encouraged to get into debt. I mean, they're doing 40-year mortgages now. Here, you want a 40-year mortgage? Sure. You want to be in debt for 40 years? Yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll let that happen. So, you know, it, the government is not going to the government is not going to be mommy and daddy and say, "Now, now, you shouldn't do a 40-year mortgage. So now we're going to regulate that. Now, you know, you can only do a 20-year mortgage." No. The government is is there to put restrictions on us, but they are there, I would say, to give us all the rope they can give us without us killing each other. But if we take too much rope, like that's on us. Mm -hmm. That that's that's our decision. Yeah, and, and with with 
great res- great power comes great responsibility, yeah. right? Or with great freedom comes great responsibility. Yes, indeed. And we have that freedom, but we have to decide how we spend it. We were talking earlier about when we're spending money. And yeah, the saving $3 on a latte probably isn't going to make you a, a billionaire anytime soon. But whenever I, I part with my money, the way that I often think about it is, is this cup of coffee, if I'm buying it from a coffee shop, is it worth $2 of my freedom? Because that's what I'm giving up. I'm mm-hmm. giving up $2 of my freedom, my time, my attention, my, my resources. I'm giving up some resource. Mm-hmm. And we've all agreed that money is the sort of common resource that we can exchange with each other because I can't give you an hour of my time for an hour of your, your time sort of thing. It doesn't work out that way. So I'm really giving up a piece of my freedom every time I, I depart with, uh, with a little bit of my money. And I find that spending cash quite often for me makes, uh, makes the budgeting... Uh, a bit easier because I, it's tangible mm-hmm. as opposed to well I'm just gonna put down my Visa card. You're just like making a rain, Millie. Yeah. <laughs> just uh, <laughs> need some coffee. Cash, cash, or like the envelope system. I don't know if you guys have yeah. gone over that. Yeah, like it's a really great way to train oneself, mm-hmm. you know, into like how is my money actually being spent? Yeah. If you mm-hmm. really want to geek out about the cup of coffee, the other thing that you're giving up is opportunity cost, which is the interest that you could be earning on the $2 that you invest over the long term. Right, yeah. right. Or any other opportunity cost. What is there something that I could do with this money that's better than buying the, the cup of coffee or buying this $80 t-shirt or whatever it is? Like, wh- what, what is the opportunity cost? Quite often it's, man, it's, it's thousands of dollars in interest over a long enough timeline, right? Mm-hmm. All right, before we dive into our surprise questions today, before we talk about spending habits, let's read some more about less. The article I have today is from U.S. News and World Report. It's called 11 Steps to Retire by Age 50. And this is sort of the a, a FIRE community article, or at least uh, the author here, Corianne Hicks. She is pulling together some resources from the FIRE community. The first step that she has here, we'll use just a few of these as discussion points. I probably won't get through all of them, but podcast, Sean, we'll put a link in the show notes. The first one is start with how much money you'll spend in retirement. I think uh, it says fire retirees use a goals-based approach to saving rather than starting with an age such as 65. They begin with how much money they need to retire. Mm -hmm. To determine what you need to retire at 50, calculate what you'll spend in retirement. And Travis, I think you could probably expand on on this a bit, but it, it sounds to me like Quite often we're just like, well, I just keep dumping money and I don't know how much is enough. So I'm just going to, I'm either going to put it off yeah. because I assume I'm going to have enough, which is the worst thing that we can do. You know, some of these myths are like, I'm too young to start saving for retirement or I'm too old to start saving for retirement. Yeah. And uh, as opposed to saying, what is enough? Ryan and I have been asking this question uh, a lot recently. Uh, what is enough? And I think that's one of the core questions of, of minimalism, how much is enough? But for you, monetarily, in the fire community, how much is enough is a great starting point. Let me see if I can remember this from the documentary, uh, Playing With Fire. It's it's you take what you think you're going to spend during a year and you multiply it by 25? Correct. Is that correct? Okay. That is that is the FI number. Okay. Right? So So why does that number work? It works because it's 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 married to something called the 4% rule. So the 4% rule states that you can pull 4% off of whatever portfolio you have invested in mm-hmm. basically in perpetuity. There was a study called the Trinity study that sort of statistically proved this out, that it was actually a 30-year-long period, which is the average length of the American retirement that you're mm-hmm. supposed to save for. But it basically goes on, you know, forever. Um, so... Again, if you want to spend $40,000 in retirement, you need a million dollars invested. 4% of a million is 40000 How much do you need in retirement? It's a great question. I mean, it's a very fluid question. And I think if you're in your 20s or 30s or even your 40s or 50s, and you're sitting there looking 10, 20, 30 years in the future, you're like, I have no idea how much I need in retirement. Yeah. But one of the things that I think that you can do, and this is kind of the point of what we did in the film, is you can take your own temperature you can ratchet up and ratchet down your spending and put yourself to the test. Take a month, see what happens if you spend no money mm. beyond your very basic needs. Just try it out and see what happens. Are you going to lose your mind? You know, or on the flip side, spend everything you make. Just go wild. Does your <laughs> life change? Are you happier? 
I love this. I love these little stoical experiments. Like this is this is great. Yeah. And then you're going to eventually, and with a good budgeting program, you're going to figure out how much money you actually need. I did this for myself for many years. Vicki Robin does this in Your Money or Your Life as well. You track every single penny you spend every year throughout the course of a full year, and you'll see exactly how much money you're spending mm. and on what. Mm. It's a great experiment. It's kind of arduous to really track, but sure. it's easier now because you have apps and things like that. Yeah, and mm. uh, an app like Every Dollar will, will track that for you and, right. and give you the the, the sort of uh, month-over-month comparison, year-over-year comparison, et cetera. Exactly, and then you can kind of find your sweet spot and be like, okay, well, you know, I would really be comfortable spending $42,000 a year. I did that last year, and that felt actually really doable. Mm-hmm. Multiply that by 25, and that's your FI number for total freedom if that's your goal. Cool. Well, the next step here is to plan for the cost of health care. I'm sure this is something that comes up as well. Well, if you retire, you're not going to have health care, health insurance, whatever. I mean, Ryan and I don't work for a corporation. We we buy our own health insurance, you know, mm-hmm. th- and there are options out there. But it is part of our budget. We have to spend money each month on health insurance, but also budgeting for medical expenses because we have high deductible plans, hoping that we don't have to spend any money besides what we pay every month for our health insurance, but realizing that, no, we probably are. And so setting that money aside in sort of an HSA account, et cetera, I'm sure you come across this sort of um, uh, objection where people say, well, if I retire, then I'm not going to have health care. Yeah, well, the insurance question is a big question in our country. It's very complicated and difficult to manage. However, the cool thing about being financially independent is that if, for instance, you're living off of a million-dollar portfolio of on $40,000 a year, your actual income is extremely low. Mm. So it throws you into a low tax bracket, and thanks to Obamacare, you can actually qualify for one of the larger subsidies. Oh, wow. So there's a math there that I can't go into too deeply because I'm not smart enough, but... Um, it's kind of amazing. So one of the tricks of the financial independence movement is that they actually get insurance cheaper than people who are earning the same amount of money. So let me make sure I heard this right. If you have a million (laughs) bucks in the bank and you're living off of the interest, 40,000 bucks a year, that's what you claim as your annual income. Yeah, well, actually the 40,000 isn't just interest. It's a combination of dividends and also selling a portion of the shares, a small amount of the shares. Okay. So... I don't have the math off the top of my head, but let's just say half of it is selling and half of it is dividends. Mm -hmm. So you're only taxed on $20,000 of dividend income, which is taxed at 0% in the United States, Mm. thanks to the tax loopholes for the wealthy 1%. Oh, wow. It's kind so of even awesome. if you're not part of the one percent, you can take advantage of those those loopholes. Totally. Wow. Yeah. And and so I'm just gonna I'll go through one more step here, and then we'll put a link to the article so f- folks want to read the whole thing. Well, you want to pick like the most important step that you feel is the most important step out well, of it. This one was an important question I have, and I don't think any of our questions cover it. So. Uh, she says here, invest for growth. Investing is essential to financial independence. Your savings needs to be invested to generate the returns necessary to replace your paycheck. And I mean, there are good years where, I mean, I invest mostly in index funds. So I have a Betterment account. Ryan and I have a SEP IRA for our business mm-hmm. as well. So, uh, and, and if you want to see my retirement accounts, you can find all that at theminimalists.com slash retirement. You can track down to the penny what I'm, what I'm saving. Um, and it's, I mean, it's maybe a year or two old at this point. I probably need to update it at some point. But uh, you'll get a, a general, you'll get a gist of how I allocate my my money. But um, invest for growth. I mean, there'll be great years where you'll have 15% growth. But the reason that the 4% rule works is you're not going to have 15% every year. Or I mean, it'd be great if you could. But there are some years where you're actually going to lose money. With 100%. It. Yeah, and, yeah. Well, hopefully not 100% of your money. No. <laughs> uh, but sometimes 50. Yeah. yeah. Well, 2008, right? Yep. That, that I, I remember my 401k literally lost half of its money. Yeah. Right. Now, And uh, then you withdrew it. No. no, no, no I, I didn't panic and remove all my money, right. knowing that actually when that happens, it's the stock market essentially goes on sale. I right? wish I would have known at the time that's what it was. There was a gal in the documentary uh, that you have uh, playing with fire where she was like, yeah, like I understand the market. And when 2008 hit, she's like, I kept putting money in knowing that it was going to bounce back. And she was, I think it's the guy who was like the youngest person to ever retire in Canada or something. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's incredible. So yeah, the 
the index funds, you don't want to invest in like one single stock, but the index funds is certainly, if it goes down 50%, like that's good news. And the reason why the FIRE community invests in index funds is because you're owning the entire stock market. Right. So when you buy an index fund, you're basically owning part of every single company that's in America. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and, and uh, as opposed to like becoming a day trader. And, and I mean, I'm not an expert in stocks or investments. And I also don't want to pay, personally, I pay you know, a, a mutual fund manager a very large percentage. So mm-hmm. uh, our SEPA IRA is through Vanguard, for example. So very low fees with, with Vanguard or any of these robo-investors like Betterment or what are they, Wealthfront, I think, is one. Mm-hmm. There, there are a few others. And um, you, as you're younger, you do want to be more aggressive in, in these funds. Is that, is that right? And you move toward more conservative over time? That's up for debate, actually. It's okay. a complicated question. But basically, you're, any money that you're investing in the stock market, you're investing for the long term. So that means more than 10 years. Mm-hmm. So every time you dump money into the stock market, you're thinking to yourself, okay, I'm not going to touch this money for a minimum of 10 years. Yeah. Um, and if you're young, you're talking many, many decades. Yeah. That money is not to be tapped. You're, that's just to generate dividends, basically. Mm-hmm. And, and that also means you don't want your emergency fund to be in the stock market yeah. either. I, I have a, uh, a separate checking account with an emergency fund. And so if something happens, a medical expense, a car expense, et cetera, true emergencies, right. I want to have easy access to that money, but also I want it to be relatively safe. I mean, I guess all the banks could go out of business and then we're in a, a, a total crisis. But otherwise, you know, if the stock market dips 50% because there's a stock market crisis, I don't want my emergency fund to be uh, tied up in, in all of that nonsense. We have a bunch of questions here. Podcast Sean put together for us. Uh, Patty Moore says, can you recommend any good budgeting apps? <laughs> every dollar. Yeah. Well, here's funny. Here's the funny part of her question. Do I really need to budget every dollar? <laughs> your, your, your answer is actually in your question. Uh, so yeah, yeah, the every dollar app is obviously a great app. They, in fact, they, they offered to advertise on this podcast because we're friends with the whole Ramsey <laughs> crew. We went on a, a tour with them last year and uh, uh, and we just don't do advertisements on the podcast, so there wasn't a fit. But we said, "Hey, we're happy to recommend yeah. it still it's because so, it's something we use." It's so tempting to be like, "Oh, dude, here's a genuine sponsorship that we can take money from and like recommend." But it's just much better to be able to talk about it in a genuine way. But yeah, I mean, it's because it comes up all the time. It's something that we really don't need to be paid to mention. Like, it really is a valuable tool that that Mariah and I use. And yeah, I highly recommend that for you, Patty. Uh, Becky says, "How do I talk to my significant other about my debt?" and the steps I'm taking to get out of it. Now, Travis, I imagine that quite a bit you'll mm. see folks who are one person and a couple is really interested. It's the biggest reason for divorce, man. Yeah, that You mentioned sex. that in the documentary too. Yeah. yeah, like money is the number one reason for divorce. It's a big problem. I, I We had a screening in London uh, a couple of weeks ago and a, and a young man came up to me almost in tears after watching the oh. film because it triggered for him what was going on in his own relationship. Mm. And that disconnect between husband and wife or partner and partner, uh, you know, can be very, very difficult to navigate. Um, You know, you got to take it case by case. One of the things that's been amazing about doing this film is that it's, it's stripping away the taboo around money. Americans, most people in America, I should say, feel a lot of shame around money. Mm. And this question is very, um, sorry, this question, this question is very much around the topic of shame um, because she doesn't want to, is a girl? Yeah, it's uh, Becky. Becky. Becky doesn't want to tell her partner that she's in debt, you right, know, yeah. that, that that's a shameful thing to have to face. So I don't know. You know, it's funny, like doing this film like reminds me of like coming out like the the way that uh, a lot of people talk to me about being liberated by this information, uh-huh. it's as if they've come out of the closet in some way where they're like relinquishing their shame. Yeah. And I th- I think it's very liberating. And so I would encourage her to, to take the step yeah. because you're going to know more about yourself. You're going to know more about your relationship. You're going to know more about your partner. Right. And since it's the person you're living with, apparently yeah. you want to know everything you can about that person. Yeah, it, it absolutely. Probably, it probably doesn't need to come up on the first date. You know, if, if you have, <laughs> hi, I'm Becky. I have $65,000 worth of student debt. <laughs> right. It, but I also think that it, you can speak about it in a nuanced way as well. You, you can say, Hey, part of this is because I made some, 
irresponsible choices with money before, and I'm making really good choices with my money now. Here's how I'm making decisions now. Here's how I'm working to pay off the debt. And I think quite often people really respect that. And when I first started dating my wife, um, she was just at the tail end of paying off some student debt. And, and for her, you know, that, that was a good decision at the time. She actually ended up not needing the, the, the degree that she got ultimately from that. But like at the time, it was a good decision, a good, a good decision for that period of her life. And so some of this debt might be, well, I felt like it was a good decision at the time. But in retrospect, of course, I had a boss once who said, hindsight is 50-50. <laughs> what? Uh, Jim Pound. Yeah, Jim Har, one of my favorite people on did, earth. Did he just get uh, uh, he, idioms he, wrong? Yeah, or? he mixed up his idiom, but I think it's a more profound idiom that way. <laughs> like, like hindsight is fifty-fifty. Like, yeah, actually, I made a mistake. I thought it was good, a good decision at the time, but uh, yeah, it's a fifty-fifty shot of being right or fifty-fifty shot of being wrong. That's great. So, so I think That's that. Great. With Becky, there's a responsible way to, to put this forward with someone. Mm-hmm. If they're new in your life, then you know, there, there's a time to, to bring this up. It's before you move in together. It's before you start sharing finances. But there's a way to tackle this, to have the conversations, to set them up for, to set expectations for the relationship. And I think that's important. Here's how I want to spend money. Because if you're setting expectations for someone, what you're saying there is, here's I plan on living this life together with you. Mm-hmm. I want to make sure we're on the same page going forward so we can spend our money responsibly. Yeah. Yeah, that could be a conduit to explore what's valuable for each person in the relationship. Mm. One of the scenes in the documentary does that. They they do a top 10 list. How do they like to, what are the top 10 ways yeah. that they want to spend their time and money? I love how Taylor, when she was like listing out her top 10 things, like none of it really involved money. No. It was great. And, and and most people will find that to be true. You list out your top five favorite things or top 10 favorite things that really make you tick or make you happy. And, and money is is not the number one driver to make those things happen. Yeah, I often think that, that you know, we can't buy happiness, but sometimes we can buy things that augment our life, that enhance our experience of life. And that's ultimately how you can be a good steward of your money is will this serve a purpose, will it bring joy, will it augment, will it enhance, will it amplify my life? If so, and I can afford it, that's another that's another key there is mm-hmm. is being able to afford it. And not, not just monetarily, yeah. Yeah, not just the 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 price tag. Yeah, yeah, I could spend a hundred dollars on this widget. But can I afford to take care of the thing, water the thing, change the tires on the thing, whatever it is, right? Uh, Kareem says, is financial independence worth it? Yes. Next question. (laughs) (laughs) It seems that to reach financial independence, you need to work many hours and cut your expenses. Would another viable path be cut your expenses and work fewer hours? Is that a minimalist approach? So you can enjoy today rather than put off this enjoyment until you quit the joy you hate. Now, I left this typo in here. She meant quit the job you hate. But it, I, Kareem, this is a beautiful Freudian slip. Quit the joy you hate. That's funny, man. Um, and I think quite often, reason I say it's a Freudian slip, I remember a time when I really wanted to get this promotion at work. Oh, yeah. I was 22 years old. And uh, there are a bunch of people trying to get the store manager position that, that I wanted. I was one of the top salespeople in the company. And I wanted more than anything to get this promotion because it was going to bring me joy. But pretty soon it became the joy I hate. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, actually, I didn't even hate it. It just, I, oh, this isn't as meaningful as I thought. I assigned all this meaning to this, this position. And now I want to quit the joy I hate. <laughs> and the things that bring us joy today may not bring us joy tomorrow is, is the message I have there. She's asking, is financial independence worth it? Does it require some sacrifice? Yeah, maybe. But I don't know that it's ever real sacrifice. Yeah. I think it's quite often faux sacrifice. We're, we're sacrificing the things we thought we wanted. But sometimes the things we thought we wanted are actually what we wanted at all. Yeah, I mean, it's that old uh, cliche of like, you don't take the toys with you. Right. Right. So all this life that you're working to spend money and buy things and consume, like in the moment you think, oh, this is going to bring me happiness or, oh, if only I had the new car or I had the trip to Italy or whatever, Mm -hmm. um, then I would be happy. 
But you don't take that with you. I mean, they've done all these studies about people on their deathbed, and it always comes back to relationships. It's mm. like how value, how secure, how meaningful, how deep have my relationships been? That's the most important thing. They're not like, damn, I wish I would have went to Italy. Never. Yeah. They never, ever regret that. There's, some, there's like a metaphor with like how the Egyptians did bury the pharaohs with all this stuff that you know somehow they thought they were going to be able to take that to you know the the afterlife or whatever but you know thousands of years later it's still just sitting there in a in a coffin i'm going to put a bunch of snacks in your coffin (laughs) (laughs) i'm a professional snacker the richest man in the graveyard is still a dead man he still snacks kareem does bring up a, a a good point though which is that balance between the sacrifice to get to financial independence versus mm. um just enjoying the moment because we don't know when our moment will be over right. um permanently so you know brandon the mad scientist tells a story uh where he moved to the woods in vermont and he ratcheted down his spending so extremely that he became depressed he was testing his own tolerance and this went on for some time until finally he was like, you know, I have to stop this. This is just too much. Mm. And so he took the, you know, he took his foot off the brake a little bit and like let let the money start flowing a little more freely. The other thing that I want to say is that, you know, you don't have to become financially independent to reap the benefits of the path to financial independence. Okay. Yeah. So what happens when you have a month's salary saved? It liberates your attention from the fear of your car breaking down and being screwed, Mm -hmm. you know? What happens if you have six months saved? Like, that's amazing. If you have a full year's salary saved, I remember when I saved my first full year's salary, it was an unbelievable feeling of freedom. Yeah. Because I was like, wow, I could just walk away for an entire year. I could go back to school. I could travel the world for a year. You don't worry about getting fired from your job. You don't worry. You can make, and that's the other thing, you can make stronger demands. You can Mm -hmm. go into your job and say, you know, I don't have to work for the next year. Maybe I can get a 10% raise. Right. You know? And I don't know. It's 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 not all about getting to the end of the rainbow. Yeah, it's it is certainly freeing. I I will say like Kareem like watch playing with fire because the the Scott and Taylor story. I mean, they deal with this exact question. Mm-hmm. And again, like I love how the documentary is not this like all right, these two people wanted to be financially independent and then they saved some money and now they're financially independent. I mean, it's a struggle. And like the documentary does a great job of showing them go going through this difficult work. Nicholas asks, I hear transportation should only be about 10% of your income. What if a vehicle is your passion? Mm. So I spend less than 10% of my income on transportation. But I probably used to spend a lot more than that because actually not probably, I definitely did. <clears throat> Excuse me. I um. But is he talking about a loan though? Like that's part of it. Yeah. So, it, so, it's so all, basically, all in transportation. So costs. What, what what they're positing is is that Nicholas is saying uh, if he's making ten thousand bucks a month, which I mean that's a high number, but I'm just for for simplicity's sake, or thousand bucks a month. Yeah, he should be spending a hundred dollars a month mm-hmm. on transportation. Right. I mean, I would say if you have a loan on transportation, like that's you're already doing it wrong. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. T- totally agree. You should never take a loan. I'm going to I'm going to really emphasize this. You should never have a loan for your transportation ever. Yeah. But what what about my commute? I have an hour and a half commute and uh, I'd love the BMW heated seats and I live in Delaware and it's really cold and but what about that, Josh? What your love is the problem. <laughs> it is not the solution. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, loving the thing, cherishing the thing, as opposed to getting value from the thing or mm-hmm. enjoying the thing. Now, you know what, Nicholas, you might really, what you're saying here is I really enjoy cars. Great. Mm-hmm. Can you afford the car you want? If so, great. Afford means you can pay for it. I have a nice car. Mm-hmm. What, four or five years old? It's mm-hmm. a Toyota. I enjoy it. It gets me from A to B, but also does so with Bluetooth, and that's nice. I, I, I like that. But I also am not living the way that I lived before. I had two Lexuses and a Land Rover, and uh, that was my, my, my corporate days, right? Because I, I needed more. And, you know, yeah, of course, flex. if you have a three-car garage, you have to fill it with three cars. Uh, although we all know this. What is it? 34% of Americans uh, 
have a two car garage but can't fit their two cars in it <laughs> because they it's so become junk. a storage yeah. unit, right? Yeah. And and so we are in a space right now where we're valuing the the car and Nicholas, great. If you can enjoy a car and you want to save 10% of your income to buy that Tesla. I know Ryan's been saving money to potentially get a Tesla. It's funny because like the closer I get to buying a Tesla, the less I want to let go of that money. And it's funny because I actually could very easily talk myself into, well, the money I'm putting away each month, I could probably put what I have down now as a down payment, and then I could get the payment down to what I'm saving every... I mean, there's very easy to talk yourself in to taking a loan out on a car. But Nicholas, ultimately... Yeah, do what you want, man. If you want to spend 100% of your income, do it. I mean, if that's truly what makes you happy, but I would posit that it's not cars that truly make you happy. I mean, yeah, if you want to buy a car and restore it and you're really passionate about restoring cars, great, man. But like taking a loan out, give, sacrificing, you know, not just the monetary resource, but your time, your attention, that mental space, keeping up with the cars, washing the cars, replacing the things in the car. I mean... Dude, if it's really worth it for you, great, do it. Would we recommend 10%? No, I, I would recommend 0%. Like when I think about the actual money I spend on my car a month, it's like one less than 1% because it's gas and oil changes and stuff. I drove a 2005 Honda Civic that I paid $6,500 for for 11 years. Mm. Yeah, Ryan, you, you're approaching how many years? You... It's a 2004, so this is 15 years. Yeah. And it's, uh, so dude, like... it's... A, and it still runs, It right? still runs, and it's got this rust spot that's just getting bigger and bigger, <laughs> and it actually costs more to replace this rust spot than than what the car is worth. It leaks when it rains, <laughs> but, like, I mean, Mariah... Luckily, it doesn't rain here very yeah, often. Right, exactly. But, like, we are... Mariah and I, like, even if it does rain and, like, you know, water's, like, you know, I turn a corner and, like, water's dripping on her, and then I turn another corner and water's dripping on me, it's, like, we just brush it off and we're, like... We, I'd rather have water dripping on me than having a car loan. Right, but also you, you can recognize that just because... Let, let's say you did want to replace your car. It just died. It exploded in your in your parking garage. You you don't have to now go out and get a car loan. You can spend $5,000 on mm-hmm. a really nice car. By the way, you've spent, you've spent time saving up the money, so right. you can afford to do that. Or you can buy a bucket, a beater that is $400 yeah. until you can afford to buy... The two thousand dollar car until you can afford to buy the six thousand dollar car, whatever it is. Yeah, you you don't have to necessarily go without. Um, although for a period of time, maybe you have to temporarily deprive yourself to get the the car that you want, but never ever go into debt. I love how Taylor in the documentary, like when they're going over the expenses and and the the the, the dude who's helping them kind of put together their plan, he's like, "What do you think about a five thousand dollar car?" And Taylor instantly is like, "No." I won't do that. No way. Yeah, no way. But then, that like, you struggle. Yeah, like she's. But she starts looking at the benefits of like, oh, if I if I can give up my expensive car that I have a loan on and and get a five thousand dollar car, like that's going to really give me open up some time for me to spend with my daughter. And like that is that's what you got to consider, Nicholas. Like, what is what's the, the oppor- trade off? Yeah, what's the opportunity cost when you put ten percent of your money every single month to your car? Summer Love asks. I have debt. Is charitable giving still for me? Of course. Yeah, absolutely. I, I don't know what the fire community stance is on, on this, but Ryan and I contribute uh, quite a bit to philanthropic causes over the last few years. We've contributed monetarily. Uh, last year, for example, uh, we donated $25,000 of our own money mm-hmm. to help build this grocery store that we're building in, in Dayton, Ohio. So our hometown has the second largest food desert in the country. The entire west side of Dayton, where 33% of the population lives, does not have a single grocery store. There are liquor stores, so you can buy Cheetos. You can buy things that are unhealthy for you, but you can't buy... A head of lettuce. Uh, yeah, or you know some organic chicken or or, yeah. or, or things that are healthy for you. Nor are you educated. So part of the, what we're trying to do is also build in some education, some programs to help people understand what is healthy. Because I know growing up, we were on uh, food stamps and government assistance and WIC, and I didn't know what was healthy. You know, Pop-Tarts and peanut butter were like some of the things that got dropped off at mm. our, our front doorstep. Oh, peanut butter on a Pop-Tart. I never even thought about that. <laughs> Patent pending. <laughs> and... Um, Ryan and I are trying to build this, this uh, help the Gym City Market build this grocery store. But it wasn't just about us giving our own money. Thankfully, we earn enough money that we can contribute a large portion of our income. We, we spend our money responsibly so that we can contribute financially. But 
even when I left the corporate world yeah. and was making that $23,000 a year I was talking about earlier, I actually donated more money that year than I did the previous year. Yeah. Uh, I gave more money, but I also gave more time and attention. Uh, there's a, a, a local charity in Dayton that Ryan and I would donate our time to, uh, the House of Bread, which is a, a soup kitchen, basically. And it's not just a soup kitchen for homeless people. Dayton doesn't have a huge homeless problem because uh, housing is relatively affordable there. And, but there is a hunger problem. In fact, quite often the people we were feeding were, they owned homes. Yeah they, yeah, they were construction workers who just couldn't afford lunch that day. Right. Wow. And so I love I love House of Bread, man. Like it's no question, questions asked. It's the same thing with the food store that's just down the street from uh, Mariah and I's uh, place where we go and help out. It's like a no questions asked thing. You show up, you get a free meal. They could be billionaires for all we know. Right. Although I would sometimes see someone on an iPhone and I'd be like, come on, man. But right. but that's a symptom. That's a symptom of a much larger problem that's happening in Western culture. It's a bad decision. Yeah, it's uh, it's I'm buying an iPhone, but I can't afford lunch is uh, you're right. That That is a symptom of, of bad decision. But those are the people who need the most help, people who have been making some bad decisions. And face it, we've all made some bad decisions. We've all been broke or broke in. It's okay to be broke. It's not okay to be broke without a plan to sort of get out of that being broke. So summer love is charitable giving for you. Yes, I would find a way to contribute 10%. However, that also can mean there are other ways to contribute, to get friends and family to contribute together. What we did with uh, Jim City, we didn't have enough money to donate the full hundred thousand dollars. So we, we reached out to our audience and they donated the other seventy five thousand. A lot of it was through one dollar donations. Yeah. Uh, a lot of it was through people donating twenty dollars or some people donated a thousand dollars. And it was the power of the community sort of coming together. People up. who didn't even know each other contributing to this community because it's a community that Ryan and I yeah. care about. That's what I love about the every dollar app too. Like the first line item on the every dollar app is uh, giving. And like, it's just a, a reminder of like, yes, no matter how much you don't have, you can give something. And you know what, even if you can't afford a dollar, like giving your time somewhere is is also like a, a, a great way to give. By the way, if you still want to contribute to that, uh, folks listen to this, it's the minimalist, theminimalists.com slash Dayton. You can still find a link to contribute to that. Now, Travis, do you find, uh, I mean, I'm sure it varies couple by couple or person by person, their desire to contribute beyond themselves, but I assume people just work that into their budgets. I think so, yeah. Um, the fire community is extremely generous, especially with their time and their knowledge. Um, those are things that you can give away as well. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, I, I kind of am on the fence about this one. I, I think if you're in debt, you should get out of debt yeah. because that's going to allow you to earn more money to eventually give more money. Yeah. If money is what you want to give, um, <clears throat> mentorship, giving your time, volunteering, these are all great ways that are actually more sacrifice than just handing over a check too. You yeah, know? Absolutely. I think, I think quite often you get more satisfaction. Uh, I mean, it feels great to be able to write a $25,000 check last year uh, to a charity, but it also feels great to put soup into some bowls and, and have that interaction with people. It's a different kind of satisfaction. I would posit that that's even a more meaningful way of giving, like having that like single person-to-person -person connection. I don't agree with that. I, I, I think that um, I think there's a good argument to be made if you really want to do good in the world is like become a Wall Street stockbroker, make several, several million dollars a year and, and spend that money on mosquito nets in Malawi. Yeah. Like you're going to save the most lives that way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're going to probably get the most satisfaction and meaning. You're right. This For, is just my way of encouraging people who can't afford to write a $25,000 check to go out and fill bowls with soup. They're going to get a much, I don't want to say better, uh, and we can agree to disagree, but you're going to get a very meaningful experience out of that. And Travis, what I hear you saying is, is yes, if you're in debt, if you still want to give, yeah, don't, okay, then don't give any money to a charity, but what you can do is get, give your time and, and give your attention. And that is going to give you uh, a sense of satisfaction for giving in the yeah. way that you can. Yeah. We, we're, uh, uh, disciples of, of Dave Ramsey here. And I, he would say, you know, find, find 10% that you're going to, you're going to give, but um, you get to decide what you're going to do with your money ultimately, mm -hmm. and you get to prioritize it. These are This is a good problem to have. Am I going to pay off my debt with this money, or am I going to give to someone who really needs it with this money? 
Wow, you get to pick. And I, you know what? I think you're winning if you're allocating your money to either uh, either direction at that point. Cody asks, where is the line between saving for the future and investing in yourself now? I am a photographer still building my business and portfolio. I have trouble pulling the trigger on gear purchases that would immensely improve the quality of my deliverables because they are large, expensive purchases. Hmm. Cody, I think you're probably fooling yourself. Uh, our director friend, Matt Diavella, who directed our first documentary, Minimalism, he... Um, Which was a great doc. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> Thanks, man. He's working on, with us on our second film called Less Is Now. And... Um, Man, he he went out and bought the really expensive red camera after our documentary was successful. Yeah, like he, like and, he was he moved to LA, he was able to afford it, and he had yeah. it for how long before he was like he he had it for too long. Actually, he yeah. had it for like a year or two and he was like he, he found himself not even using it, right? Now, you're a filmmaker and and what you can you can have all the the best equipment in the world, but that's not going to produce the best product. No. That's a uh, and I have no idea what this guy's up to in his career and his artistry, but um, oftentimes young artists think that equipment is going to tr- like be the trade for like excellent storytelling or excellent photography. I mean, Ansel Adams did not have a red camera; uh-huh. mm. he did just fine. Yeah. Right? So, and people do amazing work with iPhones. Some you of know? my favorite photographers, uh, Joshua and Sarah Weaver. We opened a coffee shop with them uh, four years ago called Bandit, right here. For those watching, um, and they use the Polaroid logo. to take pictures of us. Uh, they they no. have, I mean, they've <laughs> they used have, the, the equivalent, yeah, yeah. And um, uh, in fact, some of my favorite photos uh, that they have taken of us have been like in between shoots. That like Weaver, uh, either one of them will just whip out their iPhone, and this was back when it was like iPhone three or four or whatever. Yeah, and they have an eye. They they've curated their talent, mm-hmm. and those two can take better photos on an iPhone four than a most professional wedding photographers with their really nice Nikon or Canon or, or whatever totally. because they de- they've developed the skill set. And I think with what, what you're talking about, Travis, is, is the storytelling, yeah. right? If uh, you can tell a good story, that's what matters as a filmmaker. I don't care what Don DeLillo is using to, uh, what quill he has right. at his desk. Mm. What, what I, what I, what great I, analogy. Yeah what, yeah, what I care about is like the words he puts onto the page. That's a great point. It's like, how expensive does your computer need to be in order to write the best novel? Uh, yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. You don't even have to have the computer. Right. You can just use a pencil and a, paper, and a piece of paper. Yeah. yeah. You know? So yeah, I think I think you're right. I think he's fooling himself on this one. Yeah, yeah. I mean, dude, we just had uh, our friend Griffin House. Um, they just put together a documentary. It was all shot on iPhone, and it's a beautiful documentary. Gorgeous. Yeah, it yeah. really is, and, and even meaningful. Meaningful, and like there is a sense of raw. Like when I was giving some feedback uh, to to Shane Drake, who who directed it and edited it and stuff, I was like, hey man. Um, you know, you might want to think about getting some coloring done, like on the film. And he's like, he's like, I got friends that'll do that for free. He's like, but I, you know, the the look that he was going for to tell the story, the rawness of it is what he was really going for. And when mm-hmm. he said that, I was like, oh yeah, you're right. Like the coloring might actually take away from this like gritty, raw rock and roll story that you're trying to tell. And by the way, Shane really knows what he's doing. Yeah. He, he's won multiple MTV Music Video Awards, yeah. and he's directed videos for like really big name artists. Um, and so he knows what he's doing. Mm-hmm. And sometimes the limitations we put on ourselves, like having an iPhone to shoot a documentary, it actually breeds the creativity. It makes us more creative because we've set up these intentional limitations. Mm-hmm. Or sometimes like, ah, this is all I have to work with, so I better give it my best shot within these confines. Yeah. Let's see here, we have another question. I don't have a name for this one, sorry. If you were $40,000 in debt and you had to start paying that off from scratch, how would you go about doing it? Ideally, and I'm, I'm ideally looking for an answer which takes into consideration different earning thresholds. That would be great. So if you have $40,000 in debt and had to start paying off from scratch, what would you do? Well, I, I had this. I actually had more than that. I would just go to theminimalist.com slash freedom and you can see exactly what I did. But Travis, what, what would you recommend folks do? I would do the Dave Ramsey debt snowball. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's yeah. what I did. And I thought it was amazing. I'm assuming this person is talking about debt with interest. Mm-hmm. Um, and basically that is you kill off the highest interest percent p- part of your debt. Like, so if you have 10 credit cards and one of them's at 30% and the other ones are at 25 or 16 or nine, you start with the highest interest loan 
knock that down and then just keep rolling it over. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I love Dave's recipe. It's, it's like very tangible for anyone. So to answer his question, his part of his question is where he's like, you know, with all different levels of income, Dave Ramsey's formula works for whatever level of income you have. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So yeah, check out the total money makeover is the book. And uh, that, that'll give you all the baby steps that he walks people through. Amanda says, although it feels nice to pay for an unexpected car repair or medical bill with my emergency fund, which is totally separate from any retirement savings. True. I still feel uneasy about using my saved cash for these unexpected events. Well, yeah, when you save up all that money, yeah. it's hard to let go of. Yeah, but, so stop having emergencies, Amanda. Right, but Amanda, that feeling you have, like that's actually a good feeling because that's going to prevent you from spending the money, the hard-earned money that you have saved. But emergencies come up, and like if you're not prepared for them, that's a problem. So uh, congratulations on having that emergency fund, though. I mean, what is the stat? It's like seven, uh, 73% of people can't afford a $400 emergency. Is, yeah, is that- it's, it's terrible. I mean, Americans are really poor savers. The boomers, like 50% of the boomers don't have any money saved for retirement. Oh, wow. Like, who's going to pay for that? The right. government. <laughs> the government. <laughs> right, right. Who's the government? Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Who's funding the government? Yeah. Right. Yeah. They, they are not an entrepreneurial organization. <laughs> no. They, they are a, a, an organization with a monopoly on violence, and they can take as much money from you as they want. Oh, my God. Um, now, different conversation. I, I, well, I think I was talking to Ramit Sethi about this, uh, had him on the podcast recently, and he, I don't know, I don't know about this. I don't even know where I got this. But um, he, he didn't know about this either. But Travis, maybe you do. I think maybe one of the reasons that we do a, a bad job of saving, I think there's quite a few, obviously, the consumer culture we're in, et cetera. But I also, I also think it has something to do with language. Have you heard anything about this? So we, we have a language, the English language in particular, that has a past tense, a present tense, and a future tense. And we tend to speak about ourselves in the present tense. I am here in the studio. Um, or I will do something, but we th- we separate our future self from our present self. There are other languages like Japanese or uh, I believe Danish is, is one of the languages where the future tense is the same as the present tense mm. of the language. And in those countries, it correlates. I don't know if there's causation here, but it correlates that those countries do a much better job of saving. And I think, here's my hypothesis, is that maybe it's because... They don't, they don't delineate their future self from their present self. So their future self is their present self. And so that their present self does a better job saving for that future self because the language sort of uh, has them thinking about money in a way that is both now and later. Does that make any sense? I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> no? <laughs> no, no, I do. Um, yeah, like Chinese is like that too. Like there's no tenses in the, um, in the, in the verbs. I don't know. I, I, I think that's a really interesting hypothesis. I have not heard that before. I mean, perspective totally helps. And if you can change, you know, your perspective, like that will internally motivate you or, or hearing someone talk in a different perspective like that could inspire you to to go about saving differently for sure. We got a bunch more questions here. I'll try to get to as many of them as we can. Oh, by the way, Amanda, uh, uh, real quick, most emergencies aren't. So that is one thing to think about. Maybe you're sometimes you're, you're pulling money out of there for something you're perceiving as an emergency, but it's not actually an emergency. And, and so maybe ask yourself before departing with that money, uh, uh, uncoupling that money from your checking account, is this actually an emergency? And if so, feel good about it because you've saved the money for an emergency. Ursuline, Ursulina says... Do you think it's necessary to have a credit card? I'm working on paying off my debts and was able to reduce my credit cards down to one. Congratulations. Uh, I have been wondering if once the card is paid down, uh, should I cancel it? No, you shouldn't cancel it once it's paid down. You should cancel it right now, immediately, uh, especially <coughs> if you have debt. A credit yeah. card is is not just unnecessary. It's one of the worst things you could do. It's, it's tempting, right? Yeah. Credit cards are, aren't something that the uh, financial independence community is really, really big on. Well, they are big on them, but they use it as a ninja tool. So they basically just do it to exploit points. Yeah. So they always pay off their credit card at the end of every month. And they, they don't have debt. They have carried no debt and they leverage the banks and their promotional points offers to <laughs> the nth degree yes. so that they can get free travel and they're kind of amazing at it I have to say yeah I mean credit card is a tool 
And it depends on how you use that tool. Uh, if you're someone who is prone to spending, um, you know, spontaneously and getting into debt and talking yourself into getting into debt, you probably don't want to use that tool. Yeah. But it's like a gun. I mean, you know, it's like if you're someone who road rages and, and you know, are apt to punch someone in the face, you probably don't want to have a gun because that's going to probably land you in prison. But if you're Sean Harding and uh, you use it very deliberately and it's, you know, it's a sport or uh, and when I say sport, I'm talking about going to the shooting range. He doesn't you don't hunt, do you, Sean? No, he doesn't hunt. He's packing right now. Look but at but him. but, you know, but but honestly, though, like guns, for example, like I, I wish everyone who owned a gun was like Sean. Right, he he has done a lot of training. He's he's very responsible. In fact, I, I think that, and this is a this becomes a strange political conversation. You know, he has a, a license, a concealed carry permit, etc. Mm -hmm. But um, he uh, he has done so in a manner that is extremely responsible. Um, he treats having a gun like having a pilot's license. You know, having mm -hmm. hundreds of hours of training. And if everyone in this country who owned a gun had the level of training that Sean had, I think we would have far fewer gun violence incidents at, at yeah. this point. Yeah. But if you give a gun to an 18-year-old, then they're going to not be as responsible with it, probably. Right. <laughs> yes, I, I I agree. Well, yeah, mo at least most of them. Uh, but um, no, it's not necessary to have a credit card. If you have debt, do not have credit cards. Cut them up, get rid of them. Yeah. And once you've proven you can be responsible with money, then it's a question to ask. Would a credit card enhance my life in any way? Not necessarily. It, you don't have to have a credit card. It is never necessary to have a credit card. Absolutely. Let's just say that. Yeah. It can be a tool for the points and all these other things. It's not absolutely necessary, though. Uh, Katrina says, is there any sort of debt that is compatible with financial independence? like a mortgage. Obviously, my aim is to pay that off as quickly as possible, but we wouldn't have a home without one. Hmm. Yet, it still weighs on my mind that that debt exists. Okay, well, this is a point of controversy in the community. It's discussed widely. Basically, the short answer is a home is a consumable item, just like everything else. So home ownership, while it can be useful in terms of creating a forced savings account, um, is, is a good thing. It's still a consumable item. You have to repair it. You're, you're, you know, I mean, people always say, oh, but my house went up $100,000. Well, great. Sell it. And where are you going to go? Right. You got to go find another house that costs just as much or more. So you're not actually getting ahead in any real sense of the word. Real estate and the fire community specifically is used to generate passive income. Mm -hmm. So really, it's more of a business move than where do I live? Right. I think that people feel a sense of safety and security by owning their own home. Um, I just bought my own first condo actually three years ago, and I still sit on the fence about whether or not it was the right thing to do. Yeah. I, it's mostly emotional. I live in Hollywood, and like I happened to buy at a time that now... My apartment is worth more money than it was three years ago. But, but again, now, where am I going to go? Yeah, if you go somewhere else in Hollywood, you're going to pay roughly the same price. Exactly. So it, it's it's really not an investment. It's really a consumable. Yeah, I, I, I own yeah. a home uh, in Dayton, Ohio, and, and it's a rental property. I actually rent the apartment that I live in here in Los Angeles. and uh, But I do I look at it as, as diversifying my my investments, right? It's not the best investment either, but also I know that if the stock market tanks, I have a, a tangible asset that you know, I could resell, etc. It's it, it could go down in value as well. There are also repairs and things that I have to do. I, I have management. to pay. Yeah, I have to pay a management company every month. Yeah, so taxes every year. Absolutely. I just I, yesterday I paid my uh, uh, bi-quarterly taxes you know once every six months property taxes and that is a payment i have to pay every six months regardless of not whether or not i have a tenant or if a water heater breaks I, the taxes are still due every six months yeah. and and so yeah i might own my home but do i really because try paying those tax uh, skipping those taxes for a year or two see what happens to my home right speaking of taxes the trump tax cuts actually make home ownership less attractive okay because like for instance in california we used to be able to write off all of our mortgage interest mm. and our state income taxes. Now that the Trump tax cuts have gone in, you can only write off a maximum of $10,000 combined. Mm. So for me in Hollywood with an apartment, that's not even the full amount of my yeah. uh, taxes. Not on. close, yeah. 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 Well, the thing I'll tell Katrina is, this is something that Ryan and I often talk about. There's no such thing as good debt. 
I'm going to repeat that. There is no such thing as good debt. But De Josh, Mark Zuckerberg, <sighs> the multimillionaire, took out a loan on his house. Uh -huh. <laughs> yes, yeah. So if you're a billionaire, you can afford to have some debt. Right. <laughs> uh, that's the, the lesson to, to get out of that. Now, here's what I'll say. Are there some debts that are better than others? Of course. Having a credit card with a 30% interest rate is insane. Uh, going to the the liquor store or Western Union or whatever, getting the payday loan places and having you know, 2,500% interest rates uh, <laughs> or whatever they're regulated down to now uh, are, are truly predatory and disgusting. But guess what? Mortgages are also predatory. It, it, it's just a, it's a, an acceptable, uh, they're an acceptable predator. You're basically paying the bank to take care of their asset. Yeah. That's what a mortgage is. <sighs> yes. Mm. And so is there a such thing as good debt? No. But if there was, you wouldn't be trying to pay it off. And I think ultimately, if you do have a mortgage, to me, a mortgage is the only acceptable debt that I would have in my life. I don't have a mortgage. I own the home that I own outright. Now it's in Dayton, Ohio. So you can buy a home in Dayton, a really nice home in Dayton, Ohio for $130,000. Um, you, you can't buy a dumpster fire in, in LA for $130,000. <laughs> yeah, that dumpster's on fire. It's a quarter million dollars. <laughs> um, but uh, the thing that I'll say is I could see myself at some point like, yes, if I can put 50% down and do a 15-year fixed rate mortgage, I feel like I could pay off in seven or eight years, then maybe it would make sense mathematically for me. Yeah. It becomes a math problem at that point but I'm still gonna be trying to pay that off as soon as possible. Yeah. I think one advantage, if you can afford to pay off your own home and you're seeking financial independence, it's kind of awesome because then you have no cost of, of housing, right. right? Other than the taxes. Other than the taxes and the maintenance, yeah. which is actually, like if you're in Dayton, Ohio, and you pay off a hundred and thirty thousand dollar home. I mean, you're only you're talking less than ten thousand dollars a year for your total housing costs, probably. Yes, absolutely. So that means that your FI number is that much lower. Yeah. What's yeah. funny? I so I actually the, the house I own is on the same street as the apartment I rented when I left Dayton. And when when did we leave? Twenty twelve. Yeah, um, it was. So I was. I moved into a smaller apartment because I was really trying to pay down my debt. I lived in a $500 a month apartment in Dayton, Ohio, which was actually pretty nice. Uh, uh, I think we still have an apartment tour, the minimalist.com slash One bedroom, apartment. one bathroom, nice brick walls in there. Yeah, it yeah, was great. It was really nice. 500 bucks a month in Dayton's nicest neighborhood, mm -hmm. uh, the Oregon district. And I was living there for 500 bucks a month. And now I'm thinking about it and I'm like, well... I just paid property taxes. I'm probably spending $3,200 a year on property taxes. Plus, if there are any repairs, I'm like, man, I'm I'm not paying 500 bucks a month right now to own a house, but it. How much it, is your rent? Uh, a thousand bucks a month. Yeah. So. So yeah. you're cash flowing $500. Yeah. A month. That's yeah. not. That's not a great investment. It's, actually. Not, it's not an outstanding investment. Mm -hmm. The only the only reason I have it is is for diversification at this yeah. point, and um, because I'm I'm worried about where the stock market is, uh, and I feel good about having my money there. Uh, and also, there is a bit of a uh, Dayton is thankfully actually the, the housing prices are, are going up, and there's there's a bit of a shortage right now, and, and so. Um, but these are all ways I'm justifying it to myself. And it's just doing math and saying, okay, I believe, and it's speculating as well. I believe right now that it's a better investment than having that $130,000 in an index fund, right? However, that may, uh, hindsight is 50-50. <laughs> and that may not be true 10 years from now. Yeah. And, and um, but it, it very well may be. And so it's it's taking a bit of a, of a risk, but it's a calculated risk on my behalf. Uh, and by the way, I don't think it's a, uh, either way, I don't think I'm gonna, there's gonna be an outstanding upside for me on other side. Well, you're not losing side. money, so. No, no, I'm not. Yeah. Uh, let's see here. We have a question from Dagny who says, what's the best way to get kids to understand money doesn't grow on trees? Really good book for this by Rachel Cruz, Smart Money, Smart Kids. She wrote with her father, Dave Ramsey. She's been on the podcast a couple times. And um, she has an envelope system that um, Ryan was sort of talking about with the Every Dollar app. It's having money set aside when you're giving them their allowance 
there's a savings envelope, a spending envelope, and a contribution envelope. How am I giving? And, and helping kids understand the giving piece of it, the spending yeah. piece of it, and the saving piece of it. And doing so in a tangible way, having envelopes for them is going to be far more powerful than having an every dollar app, I, I think. I love how Dave, like when he was you know, raising uh, Rachel, he would give her exactly what she needed for her school supplies like started this at like 12 or 13 years old like hey you're gonna need this for school costs you're gonna need this for you know whatever sport you're playing you're gonna need this for lunch and he would give that i don't know if it was weekly or monthly but it was like here's the money Mm -hmm. now you use it appropriately and also helping them earn it i think is important do you have people in the fire community who have kids obviously a lot a lot of the folks who have kids um do they have any best practices that 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 they share you know i haven't actually gotten into that with uh the fire community i I don't have an answer for that i think i think uh there are probably some places for us to look online sean if there's maybe let's put a link to rachel's book in in the show notes but i'm sure there's some folks in the fire community with kids uh like like mr money mustache who who have some tips on this last question here from is from amanda uh, uh a man amandine uh i can only afford to invest small amounts every month Perhaps a hundred dollars overall. Is there an investment strategy that would work well for me? You're doing it, Amandine. That's exactly how you should be doing it. You putting a hundred bucks away a month. Uh, I would put it in index funds. Like if this is a long term, you know, greater than ten years uh, uh, savings that you're that you're putting away for, like retirement or something. Yeah, a hundred bucks in index funds. It's gonna. Would you say it's gonna double every ten years? Uh, yeah, typically, yeah. yeah. I would I would suggest a Roth IRA if she hasn't already opened up a Roth IRA. That's yeah. because of the tax benefits. It's there. tax benefit. You're you're paying tax now, so that when you pull the money out when you're older, you aren't paying any tax on the money. Yeah, yeah. that's what my my wife does. She maxes out her Roth IRA first, and it goes with the traditional IRA or or with uh, index funds. So having the the Roth IRA. Now Ryan and I we do a SEP IRA, be it self employed IRA. Um, and, and so there are a bunch of different ways to go. I think the key takeaway from this is put it somewhere that you're not going to touch it. Yeah. Uh, when you look at the studies, what we're finding is a, the the best the, the the most the best thing that people do is put the money away in a place that earns interest and they don't touch the money. It'd be better for you to put it in a savings account than putting it into a Roth IRA that you're constantly pulling money out of, right? Yeah. Uh, because then you're going to get hit with penalties and everything else. Travis Shakespeare, I want to thank you for being here today, brother. I want to acknowledge you for doing something meaningful, putting this uh, film together. This is the the first documentary, the first film about the financial independence movement, about that community. I'm really grateful you decided to uh, to do something meaningful. I think a lot of people are going to get a lot of value from this. If I send people somewhere, they should go to playingwithfire.co to check on the uh, release. You're doing a theatrical release. Uh, it's th- theatrical on demand. With the same thing we did with our, our documentary, Minimalism. So there'll be screenings. They'll also be, they'll be able to stream it soon online as well. Is that right? Yeah, we're hoping to start pre-sales of the documentary on iTunes and Vimeo and so forth around Labor Day, ironically enough. All right, well, that'll be just in <laughs> just in time for yeah. this. So uh, th- this this podcast will be out right before then. Folks, go to playingwithfire.co. I think you have a mailing list there as well. People can sign up for your email list so they can be notified when it's available, when it's coming to their city, or when you can stream it online. I strongly encourage folks to check it out. Uh, Ryan and I are in the documentary. Well, Ryan was too handsome to make the final cut. <laughs> See, the thing is, is Josh has all the good words, <laughs> and I just got the hair. <laughs> Travis, thank you so yeah, much man. for being here. We really here appreciate today, you being here, man. Thank you, guys. Really appreciate thank it. Thank you. All right, y'all. Love people and use things. We'll see you next time. Bye. The Minimalists. <laughs>